0: Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. This podcast is about being black in America for over 80 years. It is Thursday, February 29th, 2024. We begin with what happened on February 25th when active duty U.S. Airman Aaron Bushnell set himself on fire in front of the Israeli embassy in protest of the war on Gaza. Brian Becker from the Breakthrough News Channel is joined by Mike Prisner, a veteran anti-war activist and producer of The Empire Files and host of the podcast, Eyes Left. Take a listen.
1: Aaron Bushnell took his own life. Um, I know you said in the very eloquent statement that you published that you didn't even or couldn't even look at the entire video. I couldn't either, except I looked at it yesterday for the first time, the entire thing. The man holds his position while he's fully on fire. And as he's inflamed, he's screaming, yelling, free Palestine, free Palestine, free Palestine, until he finally collapses. In other words, he wasn't even yelling about the pain that he had. He maintained this sort of position, this discipline. Uh, An amazing story, I was at at a, a vigil last night in Times Square, torrential rain. Huge crowds of people just stood there for hours. And it's all over the world, Mike. People are here and everywhere honoring Aaron Bushnell. Again, you as a a former member of the US military, someone whose experience in Iraq turned you into an anti-war organizer. Um, You wrote a beautiful statement. I wanna just start by getting your overall thoughts on what's happened.
2: Oh, I mean, you know, it's, it's hard. I mean, what is, there, uh, what is there to say? I mean, there's so much, and yet it's, it's, it just kind of um, leaves you speechless. I think you're, you're right that the reception of Aaron Bushnell around the world, particularly in the Arab and the Muslim world, I mean, he's being called a martyr um, in Palestine, which is a term reserved for uh, those who uh, die in the struggle and die for the struggle, uh, statements by all the resistance groups in Palestine have called him such in Yemen. He's been given uh, designations in Arabic that are only reserved uh, for you know, serious signs of, of respect. And so you see all of those who are engaged in resistance and who have a, a deep connection to the genocide in Gaza holding him up and, you know, in a lot of ways, the same way as that Rachel Corey has been held up for her sacrifice. Um, of course, they're very different. Uh, you know, Rachel Corey didn't intend to die where it appears Aaron Bushnell did. And Aaron Bushnell was a member of the military um, and did this in uniform. And I think part of what has hit at least um, the Arab and Muslim world so much is this, uh, you know, Aaron's ability to um, do more to redeem the American people than, you know, anyone in in Congress and uh, even those who are trying to, you know, put out statements, uh, that seem like they want to cease fire or things that people like Bernie Sanders, who wants to criticize Netanyahu and, and so forth. I mean, all of that is uh, completely nothing and meaningless compared to the, um, the act of redemption that, that Aaron Bushnell, uh, tried to do. And so, I mean, I think on a, on a personal note, I mean, the, the thing that I first, um, you know, was thinking about quite a lot is, you know, Aaron Bushnell was politically conscious in the military for many years. Um, you know, I, I knew people who uh, knew him in San Antonio. You know, he was not someone who was just recently galvanized by the genocide in Gaza, as so many members of the military are being galvanized by the genocide in Gaza. And, you know, very clearly, and we know this through Aaron Bushnell's statements that it was his own complicity with what, what he believed in the genocide. You know, being a member of the air force the air force is heavily involved in the genocide in gaza i mean who's delivering the weapons you know who's running the supplies um and we know the air force is is likely playing a bigger you know logistical role than than even that and uh, i know that aaron is uh, one of many hundreds if not thousands of people in the active duty military who are are looking at their own role, wearing that uniform, you know, having to put on that uniform of the people that are running these supply missions, even if they're not doing it directly, you know, helping facilitate it in some way or another, like Aaron Bushnell did in this IT position.
1: Yeah. Okay. I wanna I wanna read some a part of what you wrote, Mike, and this is a statement. It's a tribute to Aaron Bushnell by Iraq veteran Mike Preisner. The first paragraph. The U.S. military is presented as an institution that does protecting, defending, saving, but fundamentally it is an institution of killing, of mass killing. Throughout our country's entire history, there have been service members who could not grapple with that fact, who are horrified by it and by their participation in it, of those who rebel against it in some form or another. Aaron Bushnell was one of those service members and he is in his act of desperation and despair, a giant among them. I want people who are new to anti-war activism, maybe people who are younger to realize that this act by Aaron is part of a tradition that exists of resistance inside the U.S. armed forces that the US military like like a factory is a class organization. It has a bourgeoisie, it has capitalists, and it has workers. And the workers are necessary to do the killing, to be sent, to kill people they don't know or to be killed. They are, as socialists have said for more than 100 years, the cannon fodder necessary for imperialism to wage wars of aggression against other countries or against colonized or semi-colonized people. Aaron Bushnell is a giant among them. That's what you said. But Mike, let's just talk a little bit about how anti-war activism and resistance inside the US military has had an impact in other wars. The Vietnam War. I can remember myself as a teenager that The mass demonstrations that were being organized in 1971 and 72, largely led by uh, US veterans or active duty soldiers in the thousands, in their uniforms, throwing their medals over fences. Uh, Some engaged in sabotage. Some like the Camp McCoy III were convicted of blowing up the military base. They did not wanna be complicit in a genocide and Vietnam was a genocide too. Vietnam was absolutely a genocide. Uh, Daniel Ellsberg, who released the Pentagon Papers, he looked out the window and saw Norman Morrison, a twenty-two-year-old uh, man, self-immolate in 1965, and Daniel Ellsberg said it was a moving. Imp- I mean, it was so horrified him that it moved him to 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 change along with the mass anti-war protests, and he released the Pentagon Papers. And that notified the American people that the U.S. government had been lying to them for the entire war. And that in turn generated more anti-war protests. So this is a tradition that exists that has largely been muted. Most people don't know about this, Mike. Most Americans don't know that Vietnam veterans, Iraq veterans, Afghanistan veterans have been in the struggle against war. Let's Let's just talk about that history.
2: Yeah, and it's, you know, it's a history that goes way, way back. Um, you know, recently I've been interested in reading uh, letters from black soldiers deployed to Cuba in the Philippines in the late 1800s. I mean, you know, if you really look at uh, the the shaping of this country, I mean, you had, you know, what really broke through a large in large part white racism in this country was the sacrifice and heroism of black soldiers in the Civil War who uh, really are you know played the, a massive role in defeating the Confederacy, both uh, in uniform and out of uniform, you know where the, the reason the Confederacy was able to be defeated. And so you have this you know, huge prestige where joining the military became the way that you uh, were able to earn respect in such a viciously racist society. And so what happened to black soldiers who saw that example by those before them in the Civil War, who stayed in the military after the Civil War? Well, they were sent westward to fight, Native American communities and conquer their land. They were sent to Cuba and the Philippines. And even then, and you can see in their letters home, which were published and sent to anti-imperialist publications at the time, because being anti-imperialist is not a new thing in this country. It it goes back as far as imperialism and colonialism does. Uh, You can see those same types of things that Aaron Bushnell expressed, is the believing you're signing up for something good and to do something good and that wearing a uniform means something very specific about about honor and justice. And then what you're part of is doing something uh, terrible um, to people that you have no reason to do it to. And in fact, people who are very much like you um, for people, as Aaron Bushnell refers to them, the ruling class, who are nothing like you at all. And so that history goes very, very far back. Um, Of course, that history exists in every single war the United States has waged. Uh, and, you know, from the their other expansionist wars, you know, and then you have people who do dramatic things like in the war in the Philippines, like David Fagan, a black soldier who went and joined the Philippine resistance, uh, you know, who was, uh, also a figure, uh, a giant among those in the, the, uh, GI rebellion history. But in every single war you see this, um, you know, and even world war II, you know, which was a, a fight against fascism, um, where you don't have like soldier rebellions, but you have. Of soldiers who were involved in the socialist movements and in the rebellions that did take place at the end of the war, and for rights and things like that. Um, you know, as you mentioned, Vietnam is kind of the biggest example of this, where there is such widespread rebellion. You know that the Pentagon even said openly they could not trust their own troops, and they had to completely shift the tactics of a, of the war to not rely on ground troops anymore, and then. The airmen and sailors and so forth were sabotaging equipment and stuff, as you mentioned. But I think there's a, a misconception that, that that was so vibrant because of the draft primarily. And it was just because of the draft that you had all these people in the military who didn't want to be in anymore. Um, and that only people who are kind of forced into service are capable of switching sides and realizing what they're a part of and, and really joining the right side and the side of justice. You know, Aaron Bushnell wasn't drafted. I mean, he joined willingly and he had, you know, remained in the military. Um, And so much of this history is people who joined and then while they were in had a profound change in consciousness. Um, You know, even in the Gulf War, which, you know, a a lot of people don't realize, but there were thousands of deserters and people who went AWOL and, and conscience subjectors, even when the Gulf War started. And in Iraq and Afghanistan, this has a very rich history as well. Um, Of course, you have others who made very big sacrifices. Daniel Hale, who's in prison right now, um, knew he would go to jail, but wanted to release things to stop the killing of others. Chelsea Manning, of course, went to prison for a long time, was a a principal reason the U.S. couldn't continue its war in Iraq. And so I I think the important thing is that while you do have these kind of giants of history in the, the history of GI rebellion and resistance, there are thousands more who are just unseen, who are... In the past, throughout the wars we've been in, and right now, um, active duty people who are joining the demonstrations um and and taking part in the struggle in some form uh some form or another. And that's that's largely a hidden history in the United States, but it's one that has always existed and I think speaks to the real potential of, you know, Aaron Bushnell's action perhaps. Uh, sparking more of that and inspiring more of that within the ranks. And that is specifically what was asked to the uh, Pentagon press secretary recently about does this action, are you worried that this indicates there's larger discontent among the active duty ranks? They didn't answer that question, of course, because they know it's true.
1: Well, let's, we have a clip uh, from that press presser with the, with the uh, member of the U.S. military, one of the spokespeople. We'll play it in a second, Mike. And he's asked earlier in the clip, um, does the the Secretary of Defense know about this? Does the Joint Chiefs know about it? He says, oh yes, of course. I mean, they know that this is a potential, the soft underbelly of imperialism is if the workers of the imperialist war machine decide to go on strike, decide to stop fighting, decide to resist, decide to resist illegal orders. You have a right to resist an illegal order. Genocide is illegal. If you're being ordered to do things that are complicit with genocide, you have a legal right to disobey that order. And as people start to understand that and exercise their rights, the right to possibly find a way out through conscientious objector or not to, you, you know the law on that better than I do, but there are many, many ways. I mean, when you go into the US military, you're part of a chain of command. You, you are no longer the same, same status as you are as a civilian, but you're still a human being. And there are international laws about war and about war crimes and crimes against humanity. And you are not obliged to participate in them. In fact, you have a legal right to disobey those, those orders um i want to play a clip i want to play that clip from the from the press conference and then we'll we'll talk a little bit more about it
2: but is the secretary concerned that this might indicate that there's a, a deeper issue maybe the u.s military being uh, military personnel being concerned about how uh, weapons and support for israel have been used on civilians in gaza
1: well look from a department of defense standpoint since hamas's brutal attacks on October 7th. We've been focused on the four key areas that the secretary set out from the onset. That's protecting U.S. forces and citizens in the region, supporting Israel's inherent right to defend itself from terrorist attacks, working closely with Israel to support and secure the release of hostages from Hamas. All right, uh, Mike, um, you know, it's all there's there's no mention of the mass killing the mass killing in Gaza, the blowing up of buildings, residential buildings, hospitals, universities, that's not even in the presentation. That's not in the presentation. We have a clip from, from Aaron right before he sets himself on fire and I wanna play that clip and I wanna contrast what we just heard from the Pentagon with what Aaron Bushnell said moments before he gave his life to end genocide. Let's listen.
2: I am an active duty member of the United States Air Force, and I will no longer be complicit in genocide. I'm about to engage in an extreme act of protest, but compared to what people have been experiencing in Palestine at the hands of their colonizers, it's not extreme at all. This is what our ruling class has decided will be normal.
1: Mike, um, he says so much, so calmly, so serenely, so sincerely, uh, you know, and you contrast that with how the Pentagon speaks and you talk in your statement, your eloquent statement that you've written that I, by the end of the show, we want to direct people to find it. You talk about courage and you talk about his courage and contrast it with the cowardly insipid cowardly activity of the high command. Uh, anyway, I think those two clips and contrasts certainly point that out.
2: Yeah, I think it's important to point out also that Joe Biden has still not said Aaron Bushnell's name. Uh, if you are a service member in the reserves or the national guard and you're a uh, on duty and training and you you drive your Humvee into a ditch and die, uh, Joe Biden will be saying your name that very day uh, and offering a statement of condolences to the family. He's the commander in chief. That's his job. When one of your soldiers, you're the commander of the military uh, dies, then you, you know, you acknowledge that uh, and give condolences to the family. Uh, Biden doesn't have the courage to say Aaron Bushnell's name because he knows he's responsible for Aaron Bushnell's death. Um, and, you know, in that clip that you played of the Pentagon spokesperson, both the the Pentagon, uh, that Pentagon spokesperson and the White House uh, press secretary, both of them, when they were asked about Aaron Bushnell, you know, the, what he says later in that answer and what the White House press secretary says is they go on to say that Israel has the right to defend itself. And that is ultimately their answer when asked about the the act of protest that Aaron Bushnell did. And what they are saying there is that, you know, they're not denying uh, what Aaron Bushnell was saying, that they talking about the mass killing and the extreme nature of, of all of it. I mean, we, we all see how, how extreme it is. I mean, we've gone from seeing videos of babies and children um, uh, being mutilated by Israeli bombs to now videos of babies and children Uh, who have starved to death and who are starving to death. I mean, I just saw uh, a photo yesterday of what I thought was like an 80-year-old woman who had just died, and it was a 17-year-old girl. Uh, So we are all seeing the extreme nature of what the United States uh, is carrying out uh, with Israel in Gaza. So they're not denying that those things are happening, but in both of their statements to say, to respond to Aaron Butchell's act of protest, to say Israel has the right to defend itself. They're saying that this is happening, but this is what we consider self-defense. This is the Pentagon's idea of what Israel's right to self-defense is. It is to deny formula to infants who will die if they do not have constant access to formula. Um, And so this is, it, it really says it all. I mean, if you, you know, For Aaron Bushnell to wear a uniform of a country that says, we are going to, everything we do is about self defense. It's about defending the country. This is, our whole military exists for self defense of us and our families and uh, our values around the world and and innocent people around the world. Well, we see what they mean by self defense. What's happening in Gaza is what they mean in self defense. Not hypothetically, I mean, they're saying it in their own words in response uh, to the criticism that was raised against them by Aaron Bushnell.
1: One of the things that I think is very clear about Aaron Bushnell's action. I mean, he, he took his life in order to, he wasn't simply bearing witness. He was trying to spark additional outrage. He gave his life uh, to move other people to act and that's happening. So in that sense, all around the world, people are acting in most importantly in the United States people are moved to act but it's also what he's doing in addition to being a catalyst he's also a reflection of what has happened in the last five months that there has been a sea change a profound change a profound shift in consciousness where the dominant pro Israeli narrative which has been in place for more than a half a century and dominated American politics, that's been shattered. That dominant narrative has given way to another narrative, which is that the Palestinian people have been victimized, dispossessed from their land, uh, ethnically cleansed, uh, subjected to all kinds of violence repeatedly over and over again, not since October 7th. but on October 6th, on October 5th, on October 4th, and going back to every day since 1948, that that this other narrative that what's involved here is a quest for freedom, for self-determination, for national liberation by a people who have been victimized by imperialism and Zionism. This narrative has now, this new narrative has taken hold. And I think that what, what Aaron, and this is the dialectic of action, consciousness, and movement building. Aaron, Aaron Bushnell is a reflection of the fact that millions of people have been in the streets. Now, you and I, Mike, and many other people, it didn't just start, but it's a, a smaller group of people have been working in support of the Palestinian people's rights and trying to promote a different narrative for a long time. You, you made, uh, along with Abby Martin and Empire Files, you made a movie, Gaza Fights for Freedom. That movie was all around the country. You were touring with the, with the movie, people were watching it. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I sent you a clip of, or maybe it was a week ago, of people in Atlanta who stayed up all night long at the Israeli consulate in Atlanta, screening Gaza Fights for Freedom, fighting your movie. I mean, I, my point is he is a reflection of this change. His dramatic, heroic, sort of hard to believe action, you know, that most of us could never contemplate is a, is a reflection of the power he also feels. It's not simply despair. It's the power of this new movement. Uh, let's talk about that and also your own what, what you saw when you made the movie with Abby Martin, and when you, when Empire Files and Gaza Fights for Freedom and you were working with people in Gaza and what did you see? What did you witness? And you're undoubtedly in contact with those people now. What's happened to them since October 7th?
2: Yeah, well, I think the, you know, one of the really important things you mentioned is just the, the sea change that's happened. I mean, I went to Gaza, uh, you know, I went to Palestine for the first time in 2009 when I went to Gaza right after the the 2009 war. And, you know, then, you know, nobody, it was very difficult. It was such a fringe issue. Um, And it was a fringe issue even in the anti-war movement when I was in, when I first joined the anti-war movement under Bush and in the Iraq war. Like Palestine was a fringe issue even within the anti-war left or the, the anti-war struggle. Um, And to, to, to see how far that we've come, you know, and, and when we, we made that film in 2019, it was still mostly a fringe issue. I mean, there were some moments of breakthrough, like the arrest of uh, Ahed Tamimi, Palestinian teenager, who was sentenced to over a year in prison. I mean, that uh, got some attention. And then you had the great March of Return protest, of course, that uh, got some attention as well. You've had front pages of the New York Times, um, the, the boys that were uh, massacred on the beach, um, you know, incidents have happened that have caused these little peaks in consciousness. Uh, and then when Sheikh Jarrah, you know, in, in 2021, when, when that, all of that kind of sparked off, I mean, it was just so profoundly different. I mean, it had, you know, just magnified that the biggest protest that had ever been organized for Palestine in the United States, all of a sudden became dwarfed by the, the number of people coming out um, because it was such kind of an obvious thing. I mean, there is this viral video of a guy from Long Island just going and stealing the home, of Palestinians and and that kind of exposed uh, so much to people, and now you know it's it's reached such a a different level, where um, you know I, I'm very happy that our our film has has gotten around so much. Um, you know, you asked about that the people involved in it are all huddled in Rafa, uh, the ones that were able to be in touch with, um, and trying to leave, even though they uh, had said up until this point that they never wanted to leave their home, never wanted to leave Gaza. And now they all you know, feel that they have uh, no choice at all. The the city that we start the film in, bet is is completely flattened. Um, but but now I think, you know, when that came out, our, our goal was to try to show people what what they hadn't seen. Um, and now everyone sees it. And I think now we've reached a point where everyone, it's it's in front of everyone's faces. And I think that it's, it's reached a kind of tipping point where it's, you know, we, we've reached a peak that, is the biggest peak we could have ever imagined for this. And I think, yes, I mean, what Aaron Bushnell did is just a reflection of what so many millions of people are feeling that uh, we, we couldn't have said was anywhere close to this uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, of course, in that sector of people, they're going to be those like Aaron Bushnell who feel who feel it on a, a different type of level and who feel they need to do something you know, personal and dramatic to try to stop it and and I think overall it's not just that there's been like a mass awakening of consciousness into understanding right and wrong that we've been lied to about Israel Palestine our whole lives and and what the right side is but a desperation in wanting to stop it and I think that's why the protests have been so sustained you mentioned a vigil for Aaron Bush and all of two hours in the pouring rain and people just turning out to it I mean people are so determined to stop it I mean we just got these results from this primary in Michigan where over a hundred thousand people voted in the democratic primary, um, uh, uncommitted, you know, this, this huge vote against Joe Biden showing him that he'll lose the election if he doesn't uh, change course on this. And so there's this real, um, I think people are feeling that they, they can't just know anymore. They need to do something to stop it. And that's why there's been just huge amount of desperation by the Israeli propaganda machine and by the U S government to try to put a lid on that and why they're trying to put a lid on Aaron Bushnell and that you have these disgusting stories coming out in the Washington Post and uh, from commentators uh, to try to take away from what he did and who he was. Um, you know, they're not scared that people are just gonna start self-immolating now, uh, as, as they're saying. Uh, they're scared that it's gonna be a catalyst for people to increase their determination and their action, in particular people in the military um, who, who wanna take a stand, not in the same way but who shares determination to stop the genocide that's going on, and I think that's you know we're in a situation where we have to we have to keep that momentum going because it's necessary. It's the only thing that's going to stop the genocide, um, but it's something that could take it, I think, further, uh, and it's, it's just of extreme historical significance.
1: One of the one of the important parts of any anti-war movement is what happens inside the military. As we, when we started this interview, we started there. Um, And, you know, I, you know, Mike, when I, when I was an organizer before the first Gulf War, which you also alluded to, that was in 1991, uh, we were organizing ever since the Iraqi invasion into Kuwait, which was August, 1990. Then it was clear there was gonna be a war, there could have been a negotiated settlement, but the Bush, the first Bush administration didn't want a settlement. They wanted the war. Saddam would have easily gone for a negotiated settlement. But the U.S. was, it was entering a new era. The Soviet Union was collapsing. The U.S. was flexing its muscle. It was showing that it could move its own forces right into the Middle East, right into the heart of the Arab world uh, in this resource rich part of the world. And so it was clear that war was coming. I was organizing with some attorneys who were fielding conscientious objector applications from US service members and members of the reserve. I think we had about 5,000. I'm talking about 5,000 people saying, how do I get out? They weren't getting out because they were scared. I mean, fear of war is always a factor. But these people, when I was interviewing them, I was doing intake with them, I was helping them, I was you know, sending them to other attorneys. They were like, what the hell? This is Vietnam all over again. This is Vietnam, this is the US going to war against a third world country, against a country we don't know the people, we don't know their language, we don't know their culture, we don't know their religion, but we're being sent to go and kill them or be killed by them. And we don't wanna do it. That's not what we signed up for. A lot of people signed up for the reserve because they wanted extra income or they couldn't afford to go to school. In other words, for the benefits. Uh, people have to know that this is a ripe area for mass organizing uh, and an important area because the, the bourgeoisie, the capitalists, the, and the bourgeoisie in uniform, which is the high command, they always talk about the soldiers as if they love them. We love our veterans. You turn on the, you know, a National Football League football game. It's all about the veterans. Veterans this, veterans that. And you can see how they we really treat soldiers because they don't care whether they live or die. And if they come back and they're traumatized by war, especially wars of aggression that have no seeming defensive, capa- you know, ne- necessity, they don't really help them. The number of people, Mike, I know you've been organizing veterans after your own experience in the Iraq war for for almost 20 years now. It is 20 years. The number of uh, soldiers, sailors, marines who have committed suicide. uh, That number is staggering, unlike anything before. Let's just talk about the hypocrisy of the ruling class when it comes to members of the armed forces. And I think it's important for socialists and for progressives to realize that we have to organize uh, and support and welcome into the anti-war movement those members of the U.S. armed forces who want to defy their orders, want to resist, and are sick and tired of being treated like like cannon
2: fodder. Yeah, I mean, there's just endless examples of you know, how much the, the command really cares about its service members through, you know, a, there's there's just so much there. I mean, it's it's obvious to anyone who's been in the military. It's just like a, a cliche almost of how just you're, you know, you're treated like property or or less than property. Um, uh, I think that, you know, your point about the the, the fertile ground for organizing. It, it's not just that it's possible to organize within the military and among military veterans, um, but think of how disruptive that is to, uh, the imperialist project. All right. I mean, the reason that Aaron Bushnell's action is, is such a, a, a challenging thing for Washington, it's precisely because he was an active duty service member. I mean, when you have discontent and rebellion, even if it's relatively small numbers, I mean, even if it's not Whole units. I mean, even if it's just individuals in specific locations or small groups of individuals, I mean, that is extremely disruptive and looks very, very bad for the Pentagon and for Washington. And so even small numbers of service members can take a very important um, and very dramatic action. I mean, this is what we saw, uh, you know, through the uh, the Iraq War, which, you know, is where I became uh, galvanized is you had so many. Uh, Iraq war veterans and including people still on the active duty who were coming back and speaking out and speaking up and were on cable news and were uh, challenging the narrative of the Bush administration. I mean, that was a disaster for the Bush administration. I mean, you had, I mean, it's a, there's an interesting moment early on in the war where Rumsfeld is speaking to a group of soldiers as they're deploying to Iraq and he gets booed by them um, and has to like kind of calm the crowd down because they're also frustrated uh, with what was happening. I mean, these are moments that really can um, be turning points, and I think there, you know. You mentioned working, uh, doing intake for conscientious objectors. Uh, I think there's a big misconception here that's important for organizers and for activists to know. Is there's a misconception that that this happens when people are are scared of their own lives, are scared of dying themselves, right? That oh, I signed up, you know, I, I joined this bad organization to get some college money and some job training. Uh, and you know, yeah, I'm doing something bad, but once my life is on the line, then, you know, I don't want to be a part of that. Like that's not what I signed up for. That's not the reason, uh, predominantly that service members enter into acts of rebellion, whether it's joining protest or whether it's, um, becoming conscientious objectors, you know, I just interviewed on, on my show, the eyes left podcast, uh, one of the, the, the leaders of the GI rights hotline. Who had just and she told me I asked her when the biggest peak is of people calling asking for how to become conscientious objectors, and uh, she said what uh, one of her biggest jumps like the the time where she was their phones were ringing off the hook uh, is not when people were getting ready to go get killed but was after the news came out that the U.S. had bombed the Doctors Without Borders hospital in Afghanistan. That incident is what caused hundreds of people. Um, uh, in a matter of of days to be calling the GI rights hotline to become conscientious objectors. So something that they had no role in, or something that was going to risk their lives in no way at all, but to know that they were a part of an institution that would commit just a single war crime, um, made them want to do everything they could to get out of it. And so I think that can uh, help others understand what people in the military are going through and the moments that may cause them um, to rebel in some form or another.
1: And just mention if you would, Mike, because I know you were you were dealing with veteran families. You were dealing, you were going to the bases. You were talking to people uh, uh, on the issue of uh, veteran suicide, uh, and you know the the lingering impact of being in an imperialist war machine and and the death toll that's taking among veterans. Again, it's something the Pentagon doesn't really like to talk about
2: yeah i mean i think the you know it's an average about one a day on the active duty which is quite high um you know it's obviously it's a higher suicide rate than if you're not in the military i think the 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 biggest thing to understand about that is while there is a lot more you know efforts by uh the military to provide services and things like that that was only because of a struggle by military veterans and family family members of those whose loved one had commit suicide in the military. Uh, because the, the standard practice prior to the real kind of breakthrough scandal that, that happened, um, was the fact was the, the policy was to just deny treatment, um, to say, oh, you're just using this as a way to get out of the military or a way to get out of deployment. And people would just be sent on more and more deployments. You know I worked uh, you know, with soldiers at Fort Lewis, where you know, the, the commander of the hospital actually ended up getting fired for this uh, through our, our organizing, because basically the orders to the doctors, because these are army doctors, was do not diagnose anyone with PTSD, diagnose them with uh, behavioral problems or something, and then keep them deployable to go on to more deployments. And so you know it, that just says everything, is that when there were people who were very clearly begging for help, trying to get treatment for suicidal ideation, the kind of standard policy of the military brass was to just say no and in some cases punish people for trying to seek that help and accuse them of, of malingering and so forth and it was only through the organizing of service members and their family um, and the rebelling of them that this changed at all and so you know it, it speaks to the level of care that the commanders really have for people in but it speaks to you know if people want things to change If people want the way the military operates to change and the way this government operates to change, you know, it's only through collective action.
1: armed capital Police. They deployed uh, pepper spray, uh, other so-called non-lethal weapons. They set up a police line. Uh, in or- We were going there to deliver a letter, and it was led by GI- former GIs. They were led by you and other veterans of the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War saying no to the surge, opposing the war. And so uh, you know, the demonstration was pretty brutally suppressed. Hundreds of people were arrested. Very different from the treatment on January 6, 2001. But that is also an indicator of how the government really fears uh, anti war movements that are led by, or at least par- have the participation of, members of the U.S. Armed Forces or people who have just experienced war, are now veterans, and having gone through the war have had this kind of profound experience you yourself when you joined the military you weren't conscripted it was you joined because you thought the U.S. military was doing a good thing or something for good you had a certain idealism about the military it was the experience itself your own experience and that's always the case Military, the rank and file of militaries, whether the people who made the Russian revolution in 1917 or the German revolution of 1918, that's how Russia and Germany ended their participation in World War One. It's based on a combination of people's own experience, but also progressive left socialist forces, speaking to them, organizing with them
2: and helping them find a path forward. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, you know, as you mentioned that that demonstration, um, you know, it was led by Iraq war veterans in uniform, um, you know, over 100 of them and close to 100 of them were arrested. You know, I was just one of, you know, about 100 Iraq veterans in uniform who were arrested pouring over the barricades uh, of the Capitol. And so, yeah, I mean, I think there is this obviously there's just kind of baseline morality. Where once you're confronted with the realities of what it means to be in the military, you know people know right from wrong, and you can know right away when when something is wrong. I mean, sometimes it takes time to uh, to grapple with that and to kind of understand uh, what that was for some service members. Um, but I, I think there's there's this other factor of the kind of injection of the politics by the the struggle. And so if I had never encountered the anti-war movement, you know which I hadn't at first. You know, when I got uh, I got out of the military in 2005 and I didn't go to my first demonstration until 2006 and there was, you know, a period you know of that transition of of coming back from Iraq in 2004 and having real no contact with the anti-war movement. I mean, I'm old. There wasn't much, even the, we were not on the internet, even that much, uh, back then. Uh, I think, I don't even think YouTube was, was around. Um, so the, really having no real contact with the anti-war movement and with anti-war politics, but just kind of knowing that something was wrong and kind of struggling through, uh, struggling through that kind of crisis of conscience. Um, but then going to my first demonstration in 2006, where, um, I didn't even know there would be other veterans there, but I immediately found another group of veterans, including uh, Iraq war vets that that changed everything. And you know, I went from a place where I could have just, you know, sunk into despair, but uh, I was moved into a very different place of not just understanding my experiences finally or being able to put, um, you know, a theory and an ideology to understanding what had actually happened in the Iraq war. Um, but understood that there was things that you could do about it. And there were types of actions that you could take to uh, try to uh, right the wrongs, but also prevent it from continuing to happen. And so I think that that's uh, so important today, knowing that Aaron Bushnell is really just the tip of the iceberg of mass consciousness within the military. It's not just the, it's not just the repulsion or revulsion of what we're seeing, Um, It's the the contact with the struggle and with the movement that takes that to the necessary uh, next level. The
1: US military sent to war in an imperialist war is a victimizer of the people it's occupying. And at the same time, the rank and file are the workers of the war and victimized themselves by the imperialists who don't care about them and so their transformation thus becomes a vital part of genuine anti-imperialism and a genuine anti-war movement based on internationalist
2: principles. Go ahead. The, the, the realization that I had in that moment, it, it came from identifying uh, with Iraqi people and seeing them as no different um, than my own family. And uh, I think that in Aaron Bushnell's act of sacrifice, of putting himself through the kind of pain and carnage that he saw people in Gaza going through. I mean, America, you know, especially for for white Americans like, like Aaron Bushnell, I mean, we still are just a deeply racist society in a society that's based on this, like this nationalism and and jingoism. And it's it, the fact that that people have the ability to, to break through that despite all of the, con- the conditioning is something very important. And the, the, the military the pentagon it depends on people kind of relying on that kind of racism and nationalism um to be able to do the kind of things that 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 we were supposed to be doing in iraq i mean it's dependent on that to not see people that you're occupying or not see see people that you're bombing as uh as human beings uh at all you know and i mentioned that the the rise in conscientious objectors came with the bombing of the kundas hospital i mean there was recent um, you know, big story, the New York times about the, the psychological trauma of artillery men who are sent to go fight ISIS, who never saw anything, uh, you know, guys who never saw anything were just in an outpost and just either plugged in coordinates or pulled a cord on an artillery round, knowing that the, where those artillery shells landed, even though they were killing, you know, big, bad people like ISIS, that there was also civilians dying and, and how that, um, has haunted them as well. And so I think there is this kind of natural you know, human expression of rejecting racism and um, that we're all conditioned with and embracing that internationalism where someone like Aaron Bushnell, you know, a white American could put himself through the type of pain that people who are on the other side of the world, who speak a different language, who have a different uh, religion, have a different culture, but to identify with them so deeply that that he did what he did. And I think that's a spirit that, uh, that so many of us have and all of us need to have that That so many have the potential to, to have who, who haven't yet realized that that's what it is. And, and that's what they're feeling, you know, within the ranks. And so, you know, uh, I'm not special for that testimony. It was so many people going through that same exact thing because, you know, it's, it's easy to, to crack through the racism when you're kind of confronted with it firsthand. And I think in this, you know, the live streaming of the genocide in Gaza has, has forced people to come face to face with it, Who wouldn't otherwise through just being deployed to these places that that my generation had to be.
1: Yeah, indeed. It's the first genocide that the whole world is literally watching um, in real time.
0: And that's it for this edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. Talk to you next time. And here is one day.